morning. Grateful to be with you guys. We're going to read from um, Daniel 3, 13, 18. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's really good to be with you again this morning. Um, just so grateful for uh, Mosaic, for this community, for uh, what God is doing in the community, through the community, and so uh, just so honored to be here, really. Uh, we've been in a series titled God Saves. Um, really good, powerful, and also challenging. And today we're going to look uh, at a story uh, in biblical literature or the scriptures that I think many who have grown up in the church, or even if you are fairly new to the whole Christian thing or faith thing, that you've had some kind of understanding or have heard of before. And that's three young men, actually likely teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their encounter with a very evil king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who has conquered worlds and has been brutal in forcing cultures and people to worship this country, this world that he rules and reigns. And as we go into this, I just want to share and maybe express to you some personal sentiments that I have as I read through this that I started to think, gosh, you know, I, I don't know if I look at these really impressive young men, do I really, you know, do that comparison thing where you match them, you start to pedestal them a little bit, and you're like, gosh, I, you know, I should probably do more, or I'm not as good as that, and, you, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt that, where you feel just a little bit insecure about some of the things, and then you start to feel what we might call a sense of shame for not doing more for God. And I just want to say, if you start to go down that route, I don't want to tell you what to think or feel or what, what's happening that's causing that, but I would just ask that you take a beat, maybe pause as you kind of work through that, that you might ask and assess if that's coming from a genuine place, a good place or not. Because I will tell you this, that God is not interested in shaming you into anything. Yeah? Yeah. But that you would just work through that and get to the end and join us in this journey this morning through the scriptures to see not just the fact that God saves, but how he saves, the manner in which he saves. Because when you get to that point, you're going to see, I think we're all going to see, that God truly values humanity, us. And so if you have a Bible, great, turn to Daniel 3. If not, I love that we throw it on the screen in big font because at 50, I can't see anything. <clears throat> and we're going to hunker down in, in Daniel 3 and, and, and touch a little bit in Daniel 4. 
But Daniel 1 and 2 are all about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel, these friends, this group of of dudes who are just trying to figure this out because they've been conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what happens in Daniel 1 and 2. They're forced into what we call cultural assimilation. This is something that's been historically done for generations and historically done, where you try to wipe clean any history of any ethnicity and culture. And what you do is you take young children and then you inculcate them, inculcate them with doctrines and beliefs and political opinions and theories so that they believe that there's really just one country, one, one race that everybody basically is a part of. And then they become Babylonians. And that just flips the narrative. And now nobody knows who they are except that they are Babylonians. This is not new. This is something that has been done uh, for years. Up in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So tall, but not like monstrous. So sometimes I see like, you know, I have flannel graph nightmares in Sunday school where, you know, the thing is like as big as like, it just goes gigantic. It's like every person's city is like super small. It's actually, it's nine floors. It's nine feet wide. Basketball hoop is about 10 feet. I wish it was lower. <clears throat> and if you put it on, you know, so nine feet wide, right? And I, okay, so, so big, but not, not like monumental big. Which is to say that it is an image then that rep- represents something as much as, as it is the, the big size and all that. What, what that represents is, is what we get into. And then verse 2 says, he then summoned, as he put this in this, called the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, kind of the, the capital, if you will. Verse 2, it says, he then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Now, Daniel here, or the writer here, is basically poking fun, like the pomp here, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is so ornate. And you'll see he just goes on and on and on. He does it over and over again just to poke fun at how ridiculous this situation really is. Right After he summons them, he says, then he goes into it again. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And they stood, what? Before it. And so here you begin to see, okay, this is like inaugural. This right here is kind of a form of overt patriotism that is happening here. And you begin to see how it gets really dangerous here as he begins to make a law. Verse 4, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, okay, you see, you feel it? Of all kinds of music, when you hear this national anthem, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So he's deifying Not so much just King Nebuchadnezzar as the image here, but as the power, the country. They're deifying the country. They're making it a god. And that they have to worship it. And then verse 6 is where you see the degradation of humanity. Whenever you deify something, this can and does often happen in history, has proven this. Verse 6 says of this commandment, it says, Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Right? So you deify this power, this government, and now all of life has really no value. 
Humanity, human beings are just objects to that thing that we deify, that we glorify, that we think is powerful, to the point that they're just killing people, just killing them. And as you go through the rest of the story, you see that there's actually no objection to all of this murder and genocide that is happening in, Bab- in Babylon. And this is not too far from, I think, our history. Whenever you deify something, you get very close to dehumanizing and showing a lack of dignity for, for humanity. Right? If you deify a country, you eventually have, or a race, you have the Holocaust. My parents were orphans. They grew up in an orphanage together and then married. It's very Hollywood. I mean, I'm like, is this real or not? But they lost their, my grandparents, their parents, to the Cultural Revolution, which was they were stripped of their estates, their religious freedoms, their ability to read certain Western and Eastern philosophies, and their parents, my grandparents, were shot. And my dad, even 70-plus years later, can't talk about it, about how he saw his siblings and families being shot as they were running for cover through fields. And you get, deify anything, and you begin to see this spiraling effect where it's just objects. You can deify um, career, success, to the point that like, it drives you into the ground, and you wonder, why am I so burnt out? Because it owns you. It doesn't value you. I mean, God, I was thinking about this. God was, well, I was thinking about this because God created sex. Oh, it got really quiet here suddenly. Whoa, that's kind of a shift, right? I don't know. I mean, think about this for a second. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. And yet somehow we, we deify pleasure and, and sex. It leads into all sorts of relational issues, right? Where now people are just the objects of what we want and desire in the bedroom. And if it's not good enough, well, then we'll just discard them. It's just sex. But then it also builds a trillion-dollar industry called pornography and child prostitution and sex trafficking. Have you ever met someone who's overcome the trauma of sex trafficking? It is horrific. It will break you. And so you see this deification of, of things that can culminate into a a substandard of treating people as less than human with no value. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know this. And this is why the commandments they're given by God himself is don't make these idols out of certain metals and then worship them because all the nations around you are doing this and they're just spiraling. They're just destroying themselves. And everyone knows that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not worship this. They all know this. And so they have these accusers who are keenly aware of the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to do this. And they, they accuse them, and they bring them to King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And so this is what he, his response is in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Right? He's not there. He doesn't know that they're doing or not doing it. He's a king. He doesn't have time to figure out what his junior advisors are doing on the ground level. 
But he's in a political pickle. Because in Daniel 1 and 2, he's been vouching for them. He elevated them. He brought them into his office in his cabinet to be these advisors. And so he looks like he doesn't rule and reign correctly. So he's got to do something about it. He doesn't ultimately really care about them. Sure, it's a warning, but there may be a second chance. But really, he's just trying to get out of a really impossible political situation. And then he says, well, now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, this 20, 30-piece band, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, well, very good, good. (laughs) But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He kind of gaslights the whole situation. I think he kind of knows. He's not, they're not going to worship. I don't think he has any doubt in his mind. So why not manipulate the situation to do the one thing that he really wants to do here? Not, not test their obedience or their faith to him, but to test who? God. He's interested in God's power. And he says, and this is a very symbolic thing to say, you know, talk to the hand, right? Like, my power my authority. I'm ruler. I reign. I'm the highest authority in all of the land and all of the world. So this is really a, not a test of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith, though he will praise it later. But more so, will God actually do this? Is he more powerful than me? And so, of course, they have a response to this. It's actually quite simple, but I love their faith. It's simple. It's powerful, though. Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if they really said O, but that's that's pretty cool. O Tim. (laughs) Can you imagine if we started talking like that? Okay, I'm sorry. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. No long theological debates here. No thesis for you. Why? Have you ever tried to reason with a bully? You can't. It's impossible. There's nothing rational about a person who's so insecure that they use their power to overthrow you. There's just none. So they're like, look, we're not going to try to defend this because you're not reasonable. You're not rational, which probably made him crazy, mad, upset. It's too logical for him. But, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to defend ourselves before you. If, though, we are thrown into the blazing furnace, verse 17, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Right? That he can. That's what you need to know, Nebuchadnezzar, that God is absolutely able to do this. That he can save us, that he can rescue us, because we believe that God is 100% the true God and is over all the other gods and the governments and everything else that you want to deify. And the God we serve is able to save us from it and will rescue us from your hand. So that's the faith part. They believe that God will. And that should be enough. They know, drop the mic, right? That's not a very cool way to drop the mic, but you know what I mean. Drop the mic. It's done. It's over. That should be it. They should walk. Let's go. Let's get this show on the road, right? Let's get in the furnace. But this is what is really so moving. And what stands out from all of the texts here They say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. 
That's like you eat a donut and then you eat it and it's like got chocolate in it. And you're like, whoa, that's amazing. Right? You're like, what, what's in this thing? And they, he knows this is too, it's like too genuine, he, you know. But do you realize what they're saying? They're saying, look, we know God can. We know he will. But even if he doesn't, that doesn't lessen in this moment, as much as we want him to save us, doesn't lessen in any way who God is. That they love him for who he is and not what he's going to do for them. They just love God. That's it. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, I mean, at least I am, why, why, why does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go, I mean, why, what would make them do this? I think it's because they see themselves as part of a much bigger community, a much bigger plan, a much bigger promise. That in Genesis 12, if you recall that, that Abraham's given what? A promise. And that Abraham's like, ah, I'm gonna, you're going to have all these descendants, more than all the stars in the universe and the skies, and that you, your nation will be so powerful. And they see themselves generationally through all of this. Even in exile, they see themselves as being part of a kingdom. And so they know. Even in Daniel 1 and 2, that they're, being, what, they're constantly being what, helped and saved by God. So they have no questions that God is absolutely in control. And they see themselves in that, that space. And so they can say, like, even if it's difficult that God wouldn't show up here in this moment, we just know we're part of something greater and bigger than ourselves. And so they love God for who he is. Not what he's going to do in this very moment. And I wonder if we could do that. You know, at least I ask myself, could I, could I say God can and will, but if not, God is still in control. If God would open my mom's eyes 30 plus years ago from her coma, would I be able to say still God is in control? And she didn't make it. Uh, could I say that? Could I say that at that time? Is that how I feel? Is, 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 can I say that I love God for, for who he is? Or maybe the job that you want or the, the relationship you're just, gosh, you just want this so bad. Could we say that? Uh, I, I know that's countercultural because <laughs> you're all primed out, y'all. You're all Amazoned out. Let me just see your hands. Uh, we love each other, right? Like, who has ordered something from Amazon the last two weeks? I'm, I'm raising my hand. Look at that. Look at that. So proud. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so just, I just saw someone go, two hands. Two hands, yeah. <laughs> the other day, I'm like, I'm like working, and there's like, ring. You know how they come. And like, five rings at my doorstep. Who's ordering this stuff? I didn't, you know. I, but here's the thing about Amazon, right? Their whole thing is can and will deliver. And you push a button, and it's there. Nothing too big, nothing too small, right? You want a piece of furniture? Boop, it's in your living room, right? You want a pack of number two pencils, mechanical pencils? Boop, it's in your hand and in your pocket or whatever, your backpack, so you can do work. You want one mechanical pencil? Boop, 
It's in your hand. No, no, no. You want the eraser that goes on top of the mechanical pencil. Boop. It's in your hand. I mean, can you imagine if Amazon or Prime just said, look, we can, we will. But not today. I mean, come on. Maybe you got to wait a week. Maybe a year. Maybe 10 years. Maybe 70. I mean, they go out of business. Stock prices plummet. Then you see all over the news, layoffs. I guarantee you, 18 to 24 months, Amazon, as we know today, is out of business. I think we do this with God. I think we think if, if God comes through, then we love him. But if, if he doesn't come through, well, then I don't know if you're God or not. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three dudes... They just get it, that despite what happens in this moment, not that it would be easy, not that they would be happy about it. Oh, my gosh, let's just be honest about that. But they would know that that in no way deteriorates or in any way, in any capacity that they could even think intellectually, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, suggests that, that God is absolutely not reigning and ruling in control because they love God for who he is. And, of course, this really does frustrate Nebuchadnezzar. Because, one, it's just so genuine. And I don't know if you've ever been around someone just so genuine, like, oh, my gosh, let's throw them into the fire. That's what happens. And he's like, hey, let's, let's heat this thing up. We're going to heat it up seven times hotter than it normally is, to the point that when they're ushering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this fiery furnace, <laughs> the guards are all, all burning up and dying. And so I think they were walking in by themselves by the time they get to the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then this is what King Nebuchadnezzar sees. I, I, this is how I envision it. He's like, okay, done. He's walking. But this is what he sees. He says, verse 20, 20, um, 24. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. Uh, the Hebrew there could be uh, astonished, paralyzed, actually. And asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw up in the fire? Or threw into the fire, threw up the same thing. They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. I see four human beings. What's happening here? One, two, Shadrach, Meshach, and Medigo. I mean, you know. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods, or some translations say the son of God. And so he has this, what I think is a special revelation. I don't think everyone else is seeing this. That's just me. Regardless, he's seeing this. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Like, I mean, you know, all, the, all the accolades he can think of because he knows he's screwed. Come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire and the satraps and the prefects. Oh, my gosh, the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. A single mark of any kind, right? Then Nebuchadnezzar said, here, just listen to this. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not praise Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for their faith. But praise be 
to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Because his whole thing and his arrogance was, no one can save you from my hand. His whole test was, can God come through? And he realizes that God can. So he praises God. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith, though he will say, good job. He's going to say that right now. Who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defended defy the king's commandments right they resisted and we were willing to give up their li- and we're willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god impressive therefore i decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of shadrach meshach and abednego be cut into pieces wow man Oof. and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other guy can save this way. I mean, what's he worried about? He doesn't want a bunch of divine bombs coming on him because someone talks smack about the God of Israel. That's why he's really, you know, he's really nervous right now. You can feel him shaking, can't you? And then verse 30 says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. In the province of Babylon. So God does rescue them. God does save them. And he actually promotes them, right? He, he, he elevates them. He comes through. But what moves King Nebuchadnezzar from arrogance and me to, oh my gosh, praise be to the God? Well, I think it's when he concludes in verse 29 when he says, for no other God can save you in what? This way. What way? Well, it goes back to 24 and verse 25 where he sees four human beings, or what he thinks is a form of a human and he says that's the son of some kind of god of the gods right because at this point gods are kind of vessels and you know made of earthly things and maybe they're living but he's never seen anything like this this is this is not anything he's ever seen that god would poke a hole through the wall of the universe and come down himself and go into the fiery pit and save someone his subjects but not just save them but to show mercy compassion rescue them that he had never seen before for no other god no other god can save in this way and that's the stunning conclusion for king nebuchadnezzar shadrach meshach and abednego that god rescues the humble and he does it with all this power and might because he values humanity and people that he does it with great mercy, love, compassion, saves them. Now, I was thinking, what if King, like, you know, I don't know, what if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, like, look, no one's looking. <laughs> I mean, he's, I mean, look at, look at, you know, no one's going to see. Like, let's just, let's just acquiesce. You know, we'll get back to our government work, and we're, we'll still be doing our good stuff. Like, that's, I mean, that's normal living. I don't know, because that's not how the story ended. But I do know how it ends for King Nebuchadnezzar, because that's his story. I'm going to throw those images up. He has a dream by God, with God. And, you know, I kind of nerded out. I apologize. But Daniel 3 and Daniel 4 was like, whoa, these are, like, really symmetrical. They marry each other, literally in format. And I didn't want to throw up the graph because then you would judge me. But... God gives King Nebuchadnezzar a vision. He's talking to him directly. And the vision is this. Now he's not some image of gold, 
But he's this large tree that goes all the way into the heavens. And I don't know why there's a third eye there. I, I, I jacked that from the internet, so ignore that. <clears throat> and then there's this, like, beautiful, you know, in the, in the image, it's just like his roots go out and, and, and blesses and, and provides fruit to all the people kind of thing. But then it's cut down to a stump. And in that stump, then, he's, now it says that this, uh, the vision is that there's dew around it and that he's going to be like that. He's going to be stripped of his authority. He's going to be stripped of his power, all of his capacity, all of his success, all of his gifts. And then what he's going to be is he's going to be less than human. He's going to roam in the, the land like he's been treating people. He's going to experience that himself. But that God's going to restore him. Because God is not like King Nebuchadnezzar, who's throwing people in the fire and furnaces and is quick to anger, but he's actually slow to anger, showing mercy, but trying to help even evil kings come to know this God who saves. And this is his conclusion in verse 34. At the end of that time, this is Nebuchadnezzar saying, I raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is yielding to a God who reigns. He now knows. And then here's his personal statement. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. I mean, he actually blesses King Nebuchadnezzar even more. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, now I, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So what King Nebuchadnezzar realizes is God is actually in all his power just. And that in that just power, he still is saving, not just those who have it all figured out like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but those who have fallen off the deep end. And that might rub you the wrong way, because what we like is somebody like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But King Nebuchadnezzar totally experiences what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego now uh, have, have realized in their lives, that God is there and patiently loving and rescuing. Yes, even those who least deserve it. And so what does this mean for us then? I think you have to look at it the way Jewish people in exile and occupation and oppression experienced it. They would read and listen to this. And I think the first thing is just simply that there are moments where they would look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, gosh, there are moments where we have to resist things. Where things in this world are causing people to suffer and are causing people to be dehumanized, where there's no dignity, we should resist certain things that actually cultivate that even more. But there is times where we should just resist acquiescing to certain things especially those things that maybe even deteriorate our value and our worth. And then I think before you accuse me of saying, okay, that's kind of pacifism, and I don't really adhere to that, just remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had jobs, and they were promoted. And they, it wasn't like God said, okay, well, we're going to put you over here, and now you're over here. The, the problems are over here. He actually puts them back into this scenario. 
I mean, isn't it possible that King Nebuchadnezzar comes closer to God to a faith in God because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith? But isn't that actually why their faith in this moment really matters? That they brought even the most unthinkable person closer to God and then let God have the rest. And then God took the rest and took him all the way there, restoring him, rescuing him, valuing him. And that these things should be done together in a community. You never hear it's just Shadrach I don't, or just uh, Abednego or just Meshach. It's always Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It would be easier if it was just one person because then you would have to read just one person. But it's always Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, meaning they always do it together because you need a community. We need a community to do this together. You can't resist. You can't, right? You can't love people exactly all together without it. Like, here's the deal. Here's why. Uh, everybody loves Phil, right? Yeah, come on. Yeah. I got to get to do, I get to do that every now and then. Yeah, you're like, yes, thank you. No, I know you're not that way, but. But the, but the community outside would say like, oh, gosh, Phil, that dude. First of all, the way he sings, man. I want him to sing to me every night before I go to bed. That's, what, that's, actually, that's actually what I want. But that's a totally different thing. Um, but that Phil, oh my gosh, that dude, he loves God. And the way he loves others and sometimes even resists those things that hurt people and not being part of that. I, man, Phil's amazing. But that John dude, that Yahoo... And all the yahoos kind of around John, well, at that moment, Phil's just an anomaly. But if you imagine Mosaic and the five communities and then the 10 communities and then the 20 communities coming together and loving the community, taking care of the homeless, showing mercy, grace, so they might actually see themselves as images of God, growing closer to God because of what, not the anomalies now, but the entire community? Well, suddenly you have what we say is the mission statement at Mosaic to be an authentic community for the world. And that becomes penetrating and beautiful and right. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And we're going to worship, not with the lair, the zither, the bagpipes, do you have bagpipes, Van? No, bag, no bagpipes, sorry. But I have a question for you, Van, and only one. What, what God do we worship at Mosaic? We worship a God that maybe in your mind you think is a, a punishing God, a banishing God, a God who can't, couldn't possibly love the most broken, the most disheartened, the, the most jacked up, the most messed up, the most messy people the most unfaithful, whatever word you want to use to describe it, is that the God that we're worshiping in this place? That uh, Are we worshiping something that creates more dysfunction and pain in the world? Or do we worship a God that comes and rescues and saves through mercy the humble? Well, I pray and I believe it's the latter. We worship this God who is so faithful, so patient, 
Scripture calls it in Exodus 34, right? Long-suffering, merciful, wanting people to grow closer to God because he's merciful, because he saves through mercy, compassion, grace. And so um, we're going to take from the table, and as we hear the music, I guess I'm not going to command you, but maybe I could declare that we have a God who saves. And um, when you hear this music, not the 20-piece band that King Nebuchadnezzar had, but this group of faithful followers playing worship music that we might fall down and worship a king who came into the world and showed us what power looks like in truest form, coming into the world, giving his life, not judging and banishing people, but actually as he grows in notoriety from a low-income family, he, um, he shares mercy and grace with the marginalized, right? And the despised and the hated, and he still is trying very desperately to work with others and leaders, but um, where he finds himself is on both sides of that. And even though he's growing in notoriety and they're all praising him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's coming through the city of Jerusalem. He's, just, he's not coming with angels and, you know what I mean, like military. He's not like Thor with his, you know, hammer or something like that. He's coming in, right, right. No chariots. He comes in on a donkey with 12 to 20 disciples who everyone is saying, that's, that's, that's your kingdom? And even though he tries and pleads with leaders, both those that should know better and the, those who are close to him that should know better, who are part of the nation that God has created, the kingdom that's created, they still don't get it, and neither do the, does the government. So look, the, the only way he can kind of really explain it is by going to the cross. Not images of gold, but a cross. He gives up his life to show what mercy really looks like for anybody. And so you take the bread and the cup, which represents the body and the, the blood broken and shed for us. You are in every way worshiping a God and declaring that God does what? Save the humble through mercy, compassion, and grace. And as you take that, not take that with shame or anything but this, that God absolutely rescues you and us in this space, in this city, in this world. For no other God, no other God can save in this way. So when you are ready, come, I, we just invite you to the, to the table all of who you are, all of the, all the stuff that you bring, come and experience a God who rescues and saves.